Hey, Pastor Zach here from the Grove Church, and I'm just excited that you are either streaming or have downloaded a sermon right here from TGC. Um, we're excited that you're here and just excited for you. I pray that it blesses you. But before we do get started, I just one thing I want to chat with you about. One thing I just want to really just plead with you that this would not replace you joining in with God's covenant people um, through the local church. I pray that this would be only supplemental to your growth in Christ and would in no way replace you joining regularly with God's people, sitting under your pastor and serving your brother and sister in Christ. And so if you're local to TGC, I just want to extend the invitation for you to come and join us. We're here every Sunday, 10 a.m., downtown Spruce Pine, right on Lower Street. We would absolutely love to have you. If you're not local, then I just ask and pray that you would find a local body of believers who love Jesus, preach the Bible, and is a place that you can both serve in and find community with. After all, this is God's plan to push back what's dark in the world. The local church is to be a light, and we pray that you would find that. I hope that this sermon blesses you. May God bless you as you listen to the proclamation of his word. Good morning, church. How are we? Good? Sherry's good. Um, and that's good. Man, I'm excited about this morning. We have uh, a lot of really uh, exciting things going on right now. This week, uh, as Adam mentioned, we have home groups launching again. Um, so we had home groups during uh, the spring. And we'd have like, usually like 12, 14. One time we had like upwards of 18, 20. And so we're like, you know what? Let's split the home group up into two. We'll have two home groups to keep that intimate home group feel that we're looking for. We're trying to build community. It's hard to build community with 20 people. Trying to bring that down. So we're like, hey, maybe if we had like two groups of like eight, 10, that would be awesome. We had 34 people sign up. Um, and so that was really awesome and exciting. Uh, so what we're, what we're doing, we're still just doing two. Uh, we got Tuesday nights and, and Wednesday nights. But uh, we're going to look to continue to kind of multiply that out and, ha and continue to try and multiply home groups across the week uh, and across the geographic area. I know we have a lot of Burnsville folk, and uh, I'd love to have home groups there. Um, and so, so we're looking at that. If you are Tuesday night home group, uh, you're going to be at Margie and I's house. Uh, I sent you a text last night. You should have got that. I only had one person respond. It's totally cool if you didn't respond. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Just making sure people got that text. Um, and so in, in Wednesday, I think Lauren and Joe are going to reach out to you guys and, and make sure you have their address. Um, it's going to be awesome. I'm, I'm really excited about it. So home groups are this week, Tuesday. And Wednesday, um, and then and then today I'm excited because we're starting uh, a 12-week study in the book of Colossians. Um, and so uh, when you sat down this morning, you should have had to move a, a study guide. Um, that is yours to keep. We created a study guide. There, I, I'm I'm excited about this. This is my first time making a study guide, so obviously I messed up with the bleed. So if you look at the top left, things are cut off, and I'm a perfectionist, so that really bothered me. Um, but uh, we didn't have time to fix it, so uh, that's supposed to say Colossians on every page. Uh, but, so this, this is a study guide. Um, your home group might use it, your home group might not, it's totally okay. If your home group doesn't use it to kind of dig deeper into the sermon, into the book, you can use it on your, in your personal study and use it throughout the week. Um, there's a page on the right to take sermon notes. There's a page on the left that asks some questions. Um, and if you're doing it personally, you can kind of just talk, you know, like think about those questions personally, write, jot down some things. Um, the only thing you'd really have to adapt is kind of the prayer. You might be praying by yourself, you're doing it personally, so you just kind of adapt the prayer section at the bottom. Uh, but the first two pages are kind of how to use the book, a little bit about Colossians, um, and then it is uh, kind of more 
relatable to each sermon. So I'm really excited about this book. I want to dig into the background of Colossians real quick with us. So, so Colossians is actually a letter. It's not really a book. We call it the book of Colossians. It's a book of the Bible, but really it's a letter written by a guy named Paul. And so Paul, it was, as, as uh, Adam read, Paul was an apostle. And that word apostle means, just means sent one. So Paul was a sent one. He was sent by Jesus. So he's a representative of Jesus. And Paul was a guy, if you read in the book of Acts, his name was Saul. Um, and he was persecuting the church, like arresting Christians to have them beaten and killed. And then one day on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus. Now Jesus had already died and resurrected, but he met Jesus and he, he became radically converted and became one of the most prolific pastors and missionaries that the world has ever known. And, and he's written most of the New Testament. So this is who this Paul is. Paul's writing this letter. And he's writing this letter to the church in Colossae. And, and Colossae, if you have, uh, the, the, you can throw the map up. Um, you can see, so, this, so over here is modern day Turkey on the right. And so you see Colossae, you see Ephesus. That's the church of, you know, the letter of Ephesians. Uh, Laodicea is talked a little bit about in, in the book of Revelation. Um, but Colossae's down here. Colossae was this rural town. It used to be a thriving city, but then other cities popped up around it that became bigger and kind of, kind of made Colossae smaller. Uh, industry and economy left Colossae, went to places like Laodicea and Heropolis and these different places. And so, so what happened at the time of this letter, it's a new church. It's a young church in a rural town, and, and Paul's writing this letter. Now, Paul's never been to Colossae. What happened was Paul went to Ephesus. Ephesus was a big city. It was a hub of trade and a hub of culture. He went to Ephesus, and he preached the gospel, and he planted a church. And this guy, Epaphras, Epaphras heard the gospel in Ephesus, became radically converted, went home, started sharing the gospel with his friends, started sharing the gospel with his uh, co-workers, his family, and he ended up planting the church of Colossae. And he planted this church, and this is a young church, and what happened was, unfortunately, this church began to fall into some heresy. And the word heresy is just this, these wrong beliefs about God, about Christianity. And this church began to, to fall into this heresy. So Epaphras, a young new pastor, reached out to Paul and like taught Paul, like, man, like, you heard the gospel, I love it, I'm excited. We've got these people just believing things that aren't true, could you help us out? So Paul, in response, writes this letter to the church in Colossae, a young church in a rural town, dealing with, with new believers and new belief, and, um, and, and it sounds a lot like us. Amen. We're a young church trying to figure out what this Christianity thing is about um, in a rural town, a town that was once thriving and industries popped up around us and it's kind of made our town smaller. And so man, I'm excited to see what God would do through this book. Um, we don't really know what the heresy was in Colossae. We, it's never explicitly said in the letter, but we can, we can analyze from Paul and his, his, his response to whatever that heresy was, that it was something like that we would call religious syncretism. And religious syncretism means you, you, take, you take one belief system and you take a bunch of parts of other belief systems and try and mix it together. So you're like, man, like I love this Jesus thing, but man, my, my, my Jewish neighbor, he prays like no one else. I'm going to take some of that stuff. There's some mysticism going on over here and they seem super spiritual. So I'm going to take some of that. I'm going to take some of this. I'm going to try and, for, you know, I'm going to fuse it all together into my own ver version of Christianity. It's kind of like, have you guys been to Tokyo Walk since it's become Tokyo? I don't think it's actually called Tokyo Walk, but it's, Tokyo took over China Walk, and now it's Tokyo Walk. And you go there, and it's like Asian food, right? You'd expect Asian food, but then you like turn around, and there's French fries. And you're like, what? And then you, turn, you, you walk across, and you're like, hey, here's Jello and gummy bears. Like, it's just kind of all these foods kind of mix. It's, it's mostly Asian, 
but then they have some weird chicken nuggets, french fries, gummy bears, kind of fused together. It doesn't seem to fit, but it's there. And so this is what the church in Colossae is doing. They're taking Jesus, Christianity, they're adding some other spiritual things to him. Paul, Paul's response in the letter is, no, you only need Jesus. Jesus is greater than all these things. You think, you think your mystic, mystic neighbors are, are, are spiritual, all you need is Jesus. Jesus is greater than what they do. Jesus is greater than what your friends do. Jesus is greater than these things. So he's going to talk about the pre eminence of Christ, how Christ is greater, he's before all these things, he's better, and he's going to talk about Christ, and he's going to lift Christ up in the first two chapters, and the last two chapters, only four chapters, the last two chapters, he's going to say, in light of all these things about Christ, in light about how gr much greater Christ is, and all these other things, here's how you shall now live, here's how you should live in response to that, and so we pick up this letter today, the, just the first eight verses, um, really looking at Paul's introduction, his introduction, who he is to the church in Colossae. So I'm going to start to read it again with us, um, and we'll dig into what Paul is saying here in the first eight verses. He says, Paul, an apostle, so a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And so Paul, um, it's probably Timothy actually writing the letter and Paul's dictating it. That's kind of how they did things back then. So Paul's telling Timothy what to write. Timothy's Paul's disciple. Um, he's, he's a young man who's Paul's brought up in the faith. He'll actually become the pastor of the church in Ephesus as Paul continues to go and plant churches. And so Timothy, our brother, so Timothy's with Paul, to the saints and faithful brothers in, the ch uh, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3, we always thank God the Father of, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The first thing I want us just to notice real quick is, man, Paul thanks God for them always when they pray for him. I think sometimes we can get kind of irritated when people have wrong beliefs about God. And we can get frustrated and get angry. Um, there, there's a whole thing online. I mean, maybe you're not even aware of this, but I am online called discernment blogs. And there's like, they're just these blogs of, of what I think are just angry people just like bashing pastors um, who, who, who say wrong things or say things that are wrong. And look, th th there needs to be a level, we need to test teachers and make sure teachers aren't teaching false things, but there's a, a level of arrogance and anger, I think, that Paul doesn't experience here. He doesn't exhibit here, rather. Paul, even though the church in Colossae, they're believing these wrong things, they're adding things to Christ, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. I mean, he's, he's excited that they love Jesus. He's he, he, he's writing in response, saying, like, hey, you're, you're adding things to the gospel. You're adding things to Christ. You shouldn't do that, but, but we're thankful that you, you love Jesus, and we want to we wanna focus on that. So we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because the hope laid up for you in heaven, Paul then begins to unpack what, what becomes um, called the uh, apostolic uh, greeting. It's, it's faith, hope, and love. And and you might have, have, if you've grown up in church at all, you've ever been to a wedding, you might hear about faith, hope, and love, right? So it's like Corinthians, everyone wants it at their wedding, it's the verse everyone wants. Faith, hope, and love. Paul writes about these three things all the time, faith, hope, and love. Faith, and today, in Colossae, what he's saying is, is, is we're thankful that we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your love for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so he, he lays that your love and your faith come out of the foundation of your hope. And that word hope is strange because we don't use that word hope like Paul uses the word hope. Like if I was to ask someone here today, like, hey, how do you think the Panthers are going to do this week in preseason? You think they're going to win? You might, someone might say, well, I hope so. But what they really mean is probably not. 
right? That's what they, prob- that's what they mean. They're probably not going to win. But that's not what Paul, Paul's not like this, man, I hope, I hope I get to go to heaven. I hope I see Jesus. I hope Jesus is real. I hope he really raised from the dead. No, in, in the Bible here, when Paul uses this word hope, it's this sure, uh, assurance. It's this surety of things. It's this, I believe, this thing is true. I'm staking my whole life on this. It's this hope. It's not a, man, I hope this works out in the end, like we would say today, but it's this, this is real. My hope is in heaven. My hope is in nothing else. And so we think about, um, we, when we, as we read through this, um, the, the hymn, you know, uh, uh, no, um, my hope is built on nothing less than Christ. That's this idea that, that, that my hope is built on Jesus. Um, it, it, it's what, it, it's this, such an assurance that Paul, when he writes the book of Philippians, um, he's in prison. And so the book of Philippians, Paul's in prison. He's likely in prison here too, although we're not sure. It's, it's likely that time period. But Paul's in prison, and they're like, Paul, I'm, we're going to kill you. And what does Paul say? Paul's like, that's fine, man, to, to die is gain. And they're like, all right, fine, we'll let you live. To live is Christ. Like, like you can't rock this guy. They're like, fine, we're, gonna, we're just going to beat you then. He's like, bring on the beatings. Man, I'll get to know Christ even more. I'll suffer like he did. Like, you couldn't rock this guy because he had such a hope that Christ was real, that death, life, beatings, being shipwrecked, like nothing could rock this guy. Paul's the guy, he, I mean, he's doing missionary work across the Mediterranean, and he gets shipwrecked twice. Like, if anyone could just, like, cry out to God and be like, man, like, I'm trying to do what you want me to do. Why is this happening? It could be Paul, but he doesn't. He gets shipwrecked on an island. He gets bit by a snake. Like, just all sorts of bad stuff happening to this guy. But his hope is in Christ. He's not worried about these things. His hope is in Christ. And his foundation of that hope is in what's laid up for him in heaven, seeing Jesus Christ. It says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. That the gospel is true. Now, this idea of truth is also hard for us to understand sometimes in our culture because that word truth has become really muddied and, and, and watered down. This idea of truth, we, we live in an age of alternative facts and where, where my truth may not be true for you and you have a truth and, they, and you, you, know, you live a certain way and you have certain beliefs and, that, and that's good for you, but I have different truth and, and you're right and I can be right. We can both be right even though we're telling each other they're wrong. We can both be right about that. It, it's just it, we have this idea, but Paul says there's one truth and that truth is the gospel. That the gospel is true. You have your hope laid up for you in heaven, and you've had that hope since you've heard the word of the truth, which is the gospel. The gospel. So, so, so what is this hope we have? What is this hope in Christ? What is this hope laid up for us in heaven? What is this hope in the gospel? See, the gospel is the center of everything we believe, but it's not just the center. It, I mean, really, it, it is everything we believe. All of our beliefs go through the gospel. See, the, the, the gospel in our day has been painted as like the doorway into Christianity. It's how you get in. You get in through the gospel. And that is absolutely true. But the gospel isn't just the doorway into Christianity. It's the pathway of Christianity. It's, it's the entire thing. The entire thing is the gospel. The gospel is simple enough for everyone to understand, for kids to understand, for my son, Eliam, who's five, to understand. But it's deep enough for me to wait in it forever and never get to the bottom. The gospel is the pathway of Christianity. It's not this thing you learn at the beginning and then you get, you get deeper and you're trying to leave the milk and you're getting to the meat. That's not leaving the gospel. That's staying in the gospel. That's deep, diving deeper into the gospel. The gospel is, is our belief. It's our hope. It's everything. And so the gospel, so what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the story of this entire book. The, the, the Bible is 66 books 
but it tells one overarching story of the good news of Jesus Christ. It starts in the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything. And everything he created was good. And he created Adam and Eve, our first parents. And it was very good. And everything was perfect. And Adam and Eve got to walk with God. They got to commune with God and have a relationship with God. But it doesn't last very long. Like maybe page three of the Bible, things start to go south, depending on how big your font is. And in chapter three, what happens? Satan enters in as the serpent. He deceives our first parents. He tells them, you know what? There's greater joy to be found outside of the things of God. Like you can be your own God. You can have your own wisdom, your own knowledge, and you can run your life. You can be the king of your life. Like God isn't telling you the truth. God doesn't know what's best for you. You can eat of this and you can know what's best for your life and you can make decisions on your own and you can decide how you're going to live your life. You can be the captain of your own ship and of your destiny. And he deceives them. And what did Adam and Eve do? They, they, they take the fruit. They rebel against God and say, you know, we want to be the rulers of our own life. We want to be king and queen of our life. And so they, they do that. And they get banished from the garden. They get taken out of a relationship with God. But, but that doesn't end there. And in fact, in that moment when God's saying, you have to now leave because of what you've done, God makes a promise. And he says, through you, Eve, I'm going to send someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to deal decisively with sin and death, who's going to end all of this once and for all, who's going to bring you back and get rid of the deceiver, get rid of all this stuff that you've created. He's going to get rid of all that. And then the story continues. And it may seem like the story all of a sudden stops and it gets picked up later in the New Testament, but it doesn't. Then you meet people like Abraham. And God says, you know what, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. Your family will bless the entire world. And then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the nation of Israel. And from the nation of Israel comes Jesus, comes God. And God comes down as a form of a man and lives the perfect life. And he, he, he's an example for us, but he shows us and proves to us that he's God, that he's the king. And he lives that life. And the anger that God has stored for us because of our rebellion and our sin is then poured out on Christ on the cross. And Christ willingly, because of the joy set before him, endures the cross, endures the wrath of God. And pays the penalty for our sin, and then he, and he dies separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. He's separated from God so that we wouldn't have to be. But the story still doesn't end there. Three days later, Christ is raised from the dead, proving once and for all that death and sin are defeated. And he ascends into heaven, but not without the promise of coming back someday. That someday, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to bring, right now we have his kingdom in part on this earth. Not perfect, but it's in part. And someday Jesus is going to come. He's going to set up his kingdom forever. And that kingdom is the place where there's no death, where there's no sin, there's no sadness, there's no tears, there's no abortion, there's no drugs, there's no abuse, there's no anger, there's no fighting. This place, this kingdom that he's setting up is this forever kingdom where all sad things come untrue. And that's the kingdom Jesus is bringing. And that entire story from Genesis 1 to Revelation is the story of God, is the gospel. And that hope that we have is in the gospel. And that hope is that this is true. I'm staking my entire life on the fact this isn't true, and, and, or that this is true. And so, man, that changes the way we live when we believe that's true. It does, I mean, Paul says it does two things. You have faith in Christ Jesus, and you have love for the saints. The fact that we hope, we believe, we know 
that this is true fosters faith in Christ and a love for the saints. And so we're going to look at faith and love here. But what, what we need to make sure we're doing is we're looking at this through the right lens. When we talk about our faith and our love here, this is not a thing where we're like, hey, you need to have more faith and you need to love more. This is a diagnostic tool. We're, we're going to examine our lives. Do I have faith in Christ? Do I trust God? Am I growing in my trust of God? Do I have a love for the brothers and sisters? If I don't, then maybe I need to hope in the gospel more. Maybe I need more gospel. And, and if, you, if you are growing in, a, in, in your faith and trust and you do have a love for it, you can be assured that you have your hope where it needs to be in the gospel of Christ. So this is diagnostic. What, what we can't leave here today after talking about faith and after talking about love is this idea of, well, I just got to trust it. I got to try harder. I got to try harder to love people. But let this be diagnostic. So the first question would be, where is your hope? Is your hope in the finished work of Christ? Is it in the fact that Christ has lived the life that you should have lived and he died and he gives you on no work of your own, but he gives you a right standing before God, the Father? Is that where your hope is? Or when Jesus was on the cross and he would say, it is finished, would you say, not quite. There's some things that I have to do. There's some things that I need to do to, to make myself better and clean myself up before you'll accept me. Or is your hope in the finished work of Christ? Or do you think you need to add some stuff to it? So where is your hope? I think, I think so often we think we believe in the gospel, but then we get into this idea of, well, but yeah, but I got to do this, and I, and I got to do this, and then I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to add this, and I have to read my Bible, and I have to do this, and I have to do this. And then maybe God will love me. Is your hope in the gospel or is your hope in the fact that you think you can do enough good works that will cancel out all the bad things you've done in your past and maybe hopefully then God will let you in? Where's your hope? See, our hope in the gospel will grow our faith and grow our trust in God. So the question then becomes, are you, are you growing in your trust in Christ? Not do you have perfect trust or not do you never doubt, but are you growing in your trust of Christ? Like when God speaks, do you trust his words? Like if God was to say, and he does say, that hey, there's a, I created marriage and I created sex and there's a certain way to do it. That sex is for marriage. That all sexual content is, or contact is made for marriage. Do you trust that your joy is found in purity and waiting for marriage? Or do you think, no God, I don't trust that. It's 2018. You don't know what's going on. Like, we have to figure out if we're compatible first. Or do you trust Christ? And when Christ says, hey, there's a certain way that you're going to use your finances. I want you to be generous. Do you trust him in that generosity? Or do you say things like, you know what, no, i got to save up for this, and I have to make sure I have a retirement plan. I have this, and we have this saved up. We have to have such a large savings for this. Or do you trust Christ? Like, can you, when your friend needs help, are you, do you trust Christ enough that you can give and help your friend? Do you trust Christ enough that you can be generous to the church? You can be generous to your brothers and sisters. Do you, you can be generous enough? Or, or do you trust in your ability to work and your ability to save and the security that you can bring yourself through your finances? Do you trust him? Are you growing in trust? Men, do you trust when Jesus says to lay your life down for your wife and that's where your joy is going to be found by serving her every single day? Do you trust that? Or do you think, you know what, that's going to be miserable. I can't do that. I've got I to gotta, I do stuff for myself. I have to have me time. I have to make sure I can watch the game and play the game and, and do this with the, with, with the guys. 
Do, or do you protect your time in such a way where you can't serve your wife because you have to have you time? Or do you lay it down for her? Do you trust Christ? These, all these things come back down to trust. And the reason why this is rooted in the gospel is because the reality is, if God, not sparing his own son, do you really think he wouldn't provide for you? Do you really think he'd lead you astray and, and try and rob you of joy by saying sex is for marriage? Do you think he's trying to rob you of joy? If you think that, maybe you don't understand the gospel. Maybe you don't understand how much he gave on the cross. Because I really believe if you believed that, if you understood what he gave on the cross, then, then you would trust him. You'd be growing in a trust. There would be times where you doubt. There would be times where you struggle. But, but then, like, are you actually struggling? Or have you just given yourself over to your way? Or are you struggling to live and trust Christ? Because he's not trying to rob you of joy. He's trying to let you enter into the fullness of joy by showing you this is the way I created the world to work. Would you enter into that and find joy as you glorify him? Do you trust him? We can go on and on and on. We could talk about you know, I, I, think, I think a lot of us know that being drunk is a sin, but a lot of us may use alcohol as a crutch, as a thing we can like, hey, you know what? I get home from a tough day at work. I'm going to pour myself a glass of wine or I'm going to do this. And those aren't bad things, but we become something that you need to do to relax. We need to do to unwind. That, it's, you begin to cross this line where you need something and you're not getting it from God. Do you trust him to be your rest and not alcohol? Do you trust him to be your rest and not... Netflix binging? Do you trust him to be your rest and not your vacation? Now, vacation, have fun, but it, that's not going to give you rest. You're going to come back from your vacation more tired than when you went, and you have to trust. We can go on and on into so many things. You'll never outgrow the gospel. The gospel will give you more and more and more faith in Christ, and it'll also increase your love for the saints. So the question is, where is your hope? Are you growing in your trust and faith of God? And do you love the saints? And this, this idea of loving the saints isn't like, yeah, I like them. It's like, do you love them? Do you love them? There's this kind of feeling that you have towards the saints when you're in Christ and where your hope is laid up in heaven that you know you can lay your life down for your brothers and sisters because there's something more going on than what you see. There, there's this, this, this thing here uh, in, our, in our culture and even in our community where, man, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And, and, and there's, there's a pretty big problem with that. Now, now let, me, let me caveat with saying, and the church does some weird things. Okay, so the church does some weird things. There's some issues with some churches, but the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God, you can't love Christ and hate his wife. You can't do that in any other context. Like, if you came up to me and said, Zach, I really like you, but I really hate Margie, like, I should punch you in the nose, because if I don't, Margie will probably punch me in the nose. And so, like, you can't do that. But so many people do that with God. Jesus, I love Jesus, but I hate his church. I don't like, I don't like going to church. I don't like being around those people. You can't do that. There's a love for the saints. Now, again... There, the church does some weird things. The church has hurt some people, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't enter in. 
It doesn't mean you shouldn't trust God. That he says, man, you, you should love my people and enter in and try and build community. In fact, First John would say, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, then you're a liar. The love of God is not in you. Like, that's some strong language. And so, are you growing in a love for the saints? Do you, where is your hope? Are you growing in your trust in Christ? And are you growing in your love for the saints? Now, again, we can't walk out of here today and say, well, I need to try harder. I need to, have, I need to trust God more. I need to love my brothers more. But the question is, do you have your hope in the gospel? Or is your hope in yourself? See, one of the things I have the privilege in the heartache as a pastor is I know a lot of your stories. I know a lot of what's going on in your guys' lives. And, 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 and I'm glad that I get to be a part of it. But there is just so much insecurity in the lives of God's people and in this church specifically, it's just heartbreaking because we're always trying to prove ourselves. I got to prove myself to my wife. I got to prove myself to me. I got to prove myself to God. I got to do these things and, 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 and it's exhausting. It's tiring. Now, I, I've seen marriages begin to fall apart because men find their worth in their wife and she can't handle that. She can't. You're going, I say it all the time, but you don't hear me. You're going to crush her. You're going to crush your kids if you put your worth in them. Our insecurities are birthed out of a lack of hope and faith in the gospel, a belief in the gospel. Because what you believe is you believe you have to do good enough. You have to earn it. You have to prove yourself to God, and then maybe he'll accept you. Then maybe he'll like you. And people have been coming here for months and years, and I hear things like this, and I'm just like, man, like, are we not listening? Like, I don't know what else to do, but just keep preaching, keep teaching the gospel. Like, you can't earn God's affection. You can't. Not, see, I said this last week, I think, but the, 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 the horrifying part of the Bible is not that God has wrath towards your sin. It's that he says your righteousness is like filthy minstrel rags. Like, that's disgusting. I was a janitor at a church, and, and I had to, there, there's, maybe men don't know this, but there's like boxes to dispose of those things in the in women's bathroom, and it's disgusting to clean up. And that verse started to make a lot of sense when I had to clean that up every week, is that it is, it is gross. It's a part of life, and I get it, but it is, is gross. And that's what Jesus says our righteousness is like, filthy rags, filthy minstrel rags. That's horrifying. Like, you can't earn his affection. There's nothing you could do, no long, no, no, no time, like length of time you could read your Bible or pray that would make him love you. There's nothing you can do. If you're in Christ, he loves you because you're his. Like when, when, when my son was born, both of them, or my daughter was born, they couldn't give me anything except for poop and pee. That's all they offered. It's all they brought to the table. They, like, even things like, like, I mean, like, it's really nice when your kids hug you or they, they want to cuddle. Like, babies don't want to do that. Babies don't like that kind of stuff. They might fall asleep and, like, you can snuggle with them, but, like, when they wake up, they're angry. 
So there's crying, poop, and pee. That's what babies offer. But I loved my kids because they were mine. Elian's getting to an age now where he's doing chores. And I don't love Elian because he can make his bed or he can dress himself or because he's obedient or because he's kind at school to other kids. That's not why I love Elian. I love Elian because he's mine. There's nothing Elian can do to change my affections for him. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you. There's nothing you can do to make God like you. If you're in Christ, like God likes you. He doesn't just love you, he likes you. Like he wants to be with you. He yearns for the spirit he put within you. Like he wants you. And that's incredible news. Like you read, and so in, in, uh, in, the, in the spring, or, or I, guess, I guess in the winter, we're gonna, after Christmas, we're going to go through the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is this incredible story of God chasing after someone. Like, there's nothing Jonah could do to get God to stop chasing him. Because God didn't want Jonah because Jonah was good, or Jonah was a prophet, or he was listening or obedient. He wanted Jonah because he was his. He was his tool to reach a people. He wanted Jonah because it was, he is God and, and Jonah was his. And so in the same in Christ, if you're in Christ, you have been called a son of God. You have been called a daughter of God, and he wants you because you're his. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. You can't earn it. You can't make God love you any more than he does today. Nothing you do, no long you read, no how, no, if you, I mean, I don't care if you get the Bible app and you get a streak going for five years, God will not love you more five years from now with a five-year streak than he does today. Now, you preach like that and people get concerned that, well, people are just going to do whatever they want. They're not going to read the Bible. They're not going to pray. They're, they're, they're going to sleep with their girlfriend or boyfriend. They're going to move in with them. They're going to drink whatever they want. They're not going to give. They're not going to be generous. And, and, and there's this part in Romans where, where Paul anticipates that someone's going to say that. He says, well, what, what shall we say then? Sin even more that grace may abound? And he answers that question with, may it never be, which could be better translated to literally that can't happen. Like if that's your attitude, that I can do whatever I want because God loves me and his grace covers it, then you actually don't have his grace. If you have no desire to be obedient, no desire to follow him, no desire to be in a relationship with him at all, you just want his grace so that you don't, you're not punished for your sins, then you don't have the grace. That's what Paul says, may it never be, it can't, that can't happen. If you have grace, you're not going to let sin abound. Because hope in the gospel produces a greater faith in Christ. It produces a love for the saints. You can be honest about where you are, and God's love for you will not change. God extends grace to all who would believe and repent. Martin Luther, a reformer from 500 years ago, uh, he would say it like this. He'd say, sometimes Satan would say to me, Martin, you are a liar, greedy, a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. And Luther would, to which Luther would respond, well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you don't know the half of it. I have done much worse than that, and if you can give me... And if, uh, if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins. Those you mentioned, those I could add, and indeed those I have committed and am so wicked that I am unaware of having doing so. It has not changed the fact that Christ has died for them all. His blood is sufficient, and on the day of judgment I shall be exonerated because he has taken all of my sins on himself and clothed me in his own perfect righteousness. Like, nothing could change God's love for you. 
And that's where our hope is. Our hope cannot be in me trying harder, me doing more, me reading more, me trusting more, me having, trying to have a greater love. So, so when, when, when we read things like this, they're not saying, go try and do these things so that God will love you. But he's saying, are you doing these things? And if you're not, maybe you don't have your hope where you think you have it. It's diagnostic, not prescriptive. Do you have your hope? Where is your hope today? Are you growing in a trust of God? Or are you trusting in your own works? And the call and the hope for everyone would be to put your hope in Christ. God freely extends grace to all who would believe and repent. And so in, in a moment, we're going to transition to, to, to song together and to sing together and, and to communion, um, the Lord's table. And, and this is a, a perfect opportunity. If you're a Christian, if your hope is in Christ, to come to the table and just celebrate what Christ has done for you. To celebrate all that he has done for you on, in the cross and through the whole story. To celebrate God's goodness and his faithfulness to fulfill the promise he made to Adam and Eve thousands of years ago in Christ. If, you're, if, if you don't, if your hope isn't in Christ and you don't believe this, thing, this stuff, I just ask you to sit where you are. No one's going to make judgment on that. You can stand and sing with us. No one's going to judge you for not coming to the table. But it just, it wouldn't make sense because you don't believe it. You don't believe it like we do and that's fine. If you're here today and you're not sure where your hope is, you're looking at your thing about your life, man, I don't know if I trust God. I, th I think my way is best. I don't know if I love people. I don't know if I love the brothers and sisters. If that's you, like, I'm going to be over here. I'd love just to talk with you and pray with you. But, but the call to everyone is the same. Come to Christ. Put your hope in him. Turn from your sin. Turn from your way. And turn towards him. And he will give you life. So let's pray and, and, we'll, and we'll sing together. Father, I, I thank you so much for this letter, God, that as we read this letter, it was a real letter written by a real pastor, an apostle, just, just sharing with this congregation whom he's never met some words, Lord. And I'm just thankful that this letter written a couple thousand years ago can speak to us today. Lord, I'm thankful that you are faithful that you have um, marched history to this point even today. You marched history to the point where Jesus could hang on the cross for our sins and resurrect on the third day. And you've marched it to today where we're here proclaiming the gospel and singing together and celebrating with the Lord's Supper, Lord. So I'm just thankful for your faithfulness, Lord. I pray if there's people here today who, who, who don't know if their hope's in the gospel, they're they're, they're using this diagnostic tool and they're just not sure where they are, Lord, that you would just move in their heart, that they, you would just compel them to come to you in faith and repentance, Lord, that they would place their hope in you. Lord, so we're thankful for what you're going to do here, Lord. We pray that you would be blessed by our songs here today and, and by our celebration of what you did through your son Christ, Lord. So um, just, just listen to, to our, uh, our singing, Lord. May it be a sweet aroma to you, Father. God, I love you, and I'm, I'm thankful for all that you do, and I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.